Welcome to My Way, a podcast that shares the stories of people who are doing life their way. Listen along as we explore what works, what doesn't, and the experience that happens no matter which path we choose. I'm your host, Sunny Collins. Thanks for listening. And I laid awake at night thinking, I didn't come all the way to Africa to go back into television. Sunny here. Welcome to episode 11 of My Way. This is part one of my conversation with fellow Graytonian and winemaker, Samantha O'Keefe. We're just two atypical Americans sitting on a veranda, surrounded by vineyards, at the bottom of the African continent, having a glass of super local wine and talking about life. Simple, really. Thanks for listening, and cheers. Yeah, should we that's record some some wine sounds yes. right now? Yes. Okay. okay, that's a good idea. Because it is it is a very specific. That's a good sound. idea. Okay. Okay. Are you recording? Oh wow. Show me here. Oh, that's very nice. Mm. That's my uh that's the extent of my wine vocabulary. Oh, that's very nice. <laughs> oh, that's crispy. No, that's that, very fruity. Uh, mm, I don't like that. That's kind of all you really need. <laughs> right. All right. Oh, that tastes like socks. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. My name's Samantha O'Keefe. I'm the owner and winemaker for Lismore State Vineyards outside of Grayton. Thank you for doing this interview. <laughs> I know you're busy. The first question, what brought you to Grayton? Um, in late 2000, um, I arrived in South Africa with my then boyfriend, who later became my husband, and we um, settled in Hout Bay. And when we got married and became pregnant, when I became pregnant, I really was very clear that I wanted to raise my child in South Africa and I needed something that we could do and a reason to stay. And both of us had come from the television industry. So we were looking at production services um, as a possible business to start. And I laid awake at night thinking I didn't come all the way to Africa to go back into television. And one Sunday in the middle of winter, about actually this time of year, um, it was late August, we were invited by a friend to come and look at a farm outside of Grayton, and we'd actually never even been to Grayton. So Sunday morning, we drove in the rain with our brand new baby tucked away in the back seat and pulled into this village, and there was a chalkboard um, outside of the post house, and it said, Mean Cappuccino here. So I stayed in the car with the baby, and and my ex-husband got out and he walked inside and he ran back out and he said, you have to come in here. <laughs> and, and he said, this is the best cappuccino I've ever had since we've been in South Africa. And this place is so wild. And at that time, it was owned by David Dondi, um, Lisa and David Dondi, who later um, went on to found Truth um, Coffee. And so it was a really interesting time in Grayton. And so we basically called our friend who we were meeting and she said, you know, I'm not interested in the farm. I've already put an offer in on a house and we decided to take the appointment. So we drove down 
there were fears on Durand Road and, and made that left turn. And the mountains were covered with snow and the kloof had a waterfall in it. And we drove down to the bottom house and the pond was filled with Vataplume keys. And he looked at me and said, we could plant vineyards and make wine here. Those slopes had dairy cows grazing on them. And, and I looked at him and I said, you know, we could. And so we actually checked into the post house with the clothes on our back and our little baby. And four days later, placed an offer on the farm. Yeah. And then how has Graydon changed since you first arrived here? Um, you know, we didn't know it at the time. We didn't know anything about Graydon. And, and frankly, in those four days, you know, I remember walking out of the realtor's office and there was just a lone donkey walking down the street on a Thursday afternoon, you know, and he looked at me and he said, this is great. And on a Thursday, <laughs> and, and we bought the local newspaper and there were letters to the editor with people slinging insults at each other. And, you know, and once a month, this was Grayton's newspaper. Um, but I didn't really know much about it. But, you know, in retrospect, what we all know is that 2003 was really a golden time for Grayton. A lot of young families had moved in. And the school, which now has 35 students, at that time had 72 students, to give you an idea of how many young families there were. Wow. And, you know, from all sorts of dynamic backgrounds, the art scene was so rich. And it was just a really hip, vibey place to be for all the Capetonians in the know. And so, you know, we came into this environment... 30 years old with a brand new baby and um, with all these dreams you know we're going to plant 36,000 vines and we're going to make wine and you know and we're going to change the face of the earth you know with everything that we do um, but everybody had dreams and everybody was really optimistic and and it was just a great time to be in Graydon. Cooney at the Oak and Vine, you know, had basically set it as the center of the Western Cape. People came all the way from Cape Town just to have an afternoon on the strip of the Oak and Vine. You know, I don't think I'm being too romantic to say it was just a very special place to be back then. And the community was very close and the, the young parents were very close. And, and you know, I think... I think all things change and all chapters shift, but with with that generation of children, as they, you know, went into high school and the young families moved out, um, I think we now are just in a new chapter mm. of, of Grayton. And how do you feel like Grayton has changed or influenced you as a person? I, I think I couldn't have asked for a better place to raise young children and you know it's it's pretty well known now that you know there was a lot of drama a couple of years into this story because my ex-husband left in a very public way and um I felt very held by the village I felt very supported by the village and my children absolutely were held and supported by the village even even if at times I I wasn't um I, I, I don't think I would have chosen to move to a small town, a small village, without having this bigger vision for, you know, a big business. And yet, I didn't know what I needed. And, um, and you know, my sons are now almost 13 and 15 years old, and they're extraordinary young men. And I think um, having been raised in a, in a small community that, that really loved them um, has really shaped who they are. Okay, so going back 
where and when were you born? I was born in 1971 um, in Inglewood, California. I was raised basically just north of Los Angeles in a community called Thousand Oaks, which is where the sort of agriculture started to meet the urban in the 70s and 80s. Um, you know, I, I, I often describe it as very similar to Somerset West about 20 years ago, you know, where you had, you know, suburban developments being built between the orchards and the strawberry fields. So it was, it was quite idyllic. It was very safe. Um, you know, it was, as, especially as I got older into the late 80s, it was, it was quite suburban. And yet, you know, everyone had horses, everyone had sheep or goats or whatever, you know, all of the kids grew up in 4-H, which is a future farmers initiative in America, you know, and I was thinking about it this morning before this interview, that because I often say I grew up in a suburb, and yet the truth is, it was quite an agricultural suburb. Um, so without a doubt, that shaped me. And, um, and then my father, my parents were divorced, and my father had cattle ranches in the Pacific Northwest. So I spent my holidays on on his ranches in the Pacific Northwest. Wow. And what's your first memory? Um, when I was growing up, we lived in a split-level ranch-style house on the top of a hill that looked out over the town of Camarillo. And my father, was a, he was a surgeon, an orthopedic surgeon by trade, but he was a private pilot. And so we would, every weekend, fly to our ranch in Oregon. And so my first memory is that house and being loaded into that plane every weekend. What were, are your parents like? Um, my, my mother and my father were, were pretty larger than life personalities and, and very eccentric. And um, my stepfather was very grounded. And um, my, my father was an orthopedic surgeon and all he ever wanted to be was a cowboy. So he would he would doctor just long enough in order to have enough money that he could cowboy and be on his ranch and ride around with his cows. And my mother was a very beautiful amputee who was very glamorous and, and a socialite in the community and a businesswoman. And so she was very much larger than life, this very pretty, glamorous woman with one leg. Um, how did she lose her leg? She lost her leg when she was 22 in a boat accident. And my father was her surgeon. And that's how they met. Oh, wow. That yeah. sounds like a novel. It, it actually did become like a hallmark. <laughs> <laughs> it does. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. That's what I mean. It, it, was, it was that part of, I think, my beginnings... Um, explains a lot of my eccentricities. It's I the novel starts off, <laughs> yeah. he took my leg and then he took my heart. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay, keep going. Yeah. So um, they were divorced when I was seven. And by the time I was 10 years old, George Myers, my stepfather, was in my life. And he was the counterbalance to all of that weirdness. Um, I mean, weird in a in a good way, but also you know, both both my mother and my father were extraordinarily selfish and, and wanted the life that they wanted and weren't all that bothered with their kids. And then George, my stepfather, was always there for me, always listening to me, always able to help me and guide me. And to this day, he still does. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so how did your stepdad come into your life? How did they meet? He, it was a blind date. And... Yeah, I don't know. He fell 
madly in love with my mother who he you know he he is the man who stands there and basks in all of her glory she's the woman who if there's a microphone in the room she will have it in her hand and she'll probably burst into song if if you give her a minute wow and um and he loved it and he just and he still loves her with yeah. every they're 73 they've been together you know i think almost 40 years wow. and um and he, he always says he, he still has so much fun with her. She's now in a wheelchair. She had a prosthetic her whole life. And she was amputee golf champion of the world, you know, like the women's amputee golf champion of the world for a while. And he always said, I just think, you know, she's the most amazing woman. And God took one of her legs so I could keep up with her, you know. Oh, it, my gosh. That's a great line, yeah. too. <laughs> no, it's... <laughs> He's a very special person. Even my, my father always said, you know, there's a special place in heaven for George Myers. And yeah. so he took the three of us. It was me and a brother and a sister. I was the oldest. And he took us and took care of us and yeah, raised us. This episode of My Way has been brought to you by South African Wine. Whenever you're feeling fruitless, think of South African Wine. Galileo thought of wine as sunlight held together by water. With plenty of sunlight and water along the southern tip of Africa, Jan van Riebeck with the Dutch East India Company was noted as the first person to plant grapevines in South Africa back in 1652. Fast forward 250 years and 80 million vines later, South Africa was producing a surplus of wine in the early 1900s. This led to the formation of the KWV Co-op to regulate the production of wine, which helped balance supply and demand. However, Due to the country's oppressive system of apartheid, South African goods were boycotted and therefore isolated the wine industry from the global market. In 1993, after winning the Nobel Peace Prize, Nelson Mandela made a toast with Cape wine. Since then, the tables have gradually turned in favor of South African winemakers. With just over 100 wineries, South Africa claims 1.5% of the world's grapevines and is considered one of the top 10 wine-producing countries in the world. Do you feel complex and delicate? Try Viognier. Known for being a tad exclusive and difficult, Pinot Noir might be for you. Feeling irresistible and adaptable? Pour Chenin Blanc. Whatever the mood, South African wine has something to reflect it. South African wine, where being crushed, aging, and making multiple poor decisions are all good things. So, so talk about your, your brother and your sister and where you are in the lineup. I'm the oldest. My, my real father, I, my mother was his second wife. There were four children. Um, in the first marriage, and then three children in the second marriage. I'm the oldest of those three. He was a Catholic, um, Irish Catholic, mm -hmm. um, and you know, um, it was it was a time of I guess sexual discovery and and um, you know the sixty late sixties early seventies. And um, but those those four children mostly were raised in Montana. So I, of course I knew them and you know, but I wasn't very close with them. So I was the oldest of the three. And I've always considered myself the oldest in the family. And then George had a daughter, Denise, who was an only child. 
Um, so, so I, I grew up, I was, I was that kid in the, in the late seventies, I would say, you know, I have one real brother, one real sister, two half brothers, two half sisters, one step brother, one step sister. <laughs> so you were like a very the, American, Californian. Yeah, sort of Brady Bunch. Yeah. 1979 America. Right, sure. right. And, uh, did you have any heroes or role models when you were growing up? I, when I was growing up, I worshiped explorers. And even, um, you know, I, as when I was in high school, I wanted to be a National Geographic Explorer. I uh-huh. wanted to, you know, I wanted, I, I worshipped the, you know, Hemingway and and F. Scott Fitzgerald and and that entire generation that just wandered around the world. You know, mm-hmm. that the the explorers that just got on a ship and sailed into unknown places, not knowing if they were ever coming back. Mm-hmm. You know, I was obsessed with the idea of disappearing into nowhere and and discovering new lands i still am to a certain degree yeah uh like since you were a kid you've kind of always wanted to always explore yeah i was i was obsessed with history i was obsessed with biographies of of people who disappeared into the vast wilderness Mm. and and um and pushed boundaries and pioneered their own way and yeah yeah um i'm i'm inspired by people who see no limits mm-hmm. yeah. I think I wanted to be someone like Mike Fay who just like who just right. lived totally on the outside and did my own thing and you know pushed across the interior of Africa mm-hmm. because I can you know right right <laughs> and just documented it because I can you know I wanted right. to be Livingston you know mm-hmm. I I really did I mean that was that's exactly how I saw myself uh-huh yeah. And so you talked about how you were in television before you were in wine. So can you talk about that a little bit? You know, that part of my life, it, the older I get, the smaller that part of my life was. But, you know, and I, I basically ended up graduating from Berkeley with a degree in development, in political science with a focus in development. I fully intended to work for NGOs or the World Bank or the IMF. I wanted to be, oh, by wow. then, I wanted to be Christine Lagarde. And even though Christine Lagarde wasn't around then, but, if, you know, but who Christine Lagarde is today, that's who I wanted to be. And, you know, young adult decisions. I, I, I agreed to stay in Los Angeles with my then boyfriend while he finished law school and ended up in television. And at 29, I resigned from my job and left hmm did you enjoy that work I didn't and and that's what made it so sad is that it's an industry where people are so passionate about what they do and I wasn't passionate right about it at all right and and frankly I I remember we were shooting a pilot in in the green room and you know television people are very pretentious and you know the question what is your favorite movie and you know you're supposed to say Casablanca. You know there there is there are pat answers that you're Citizen supposed Kane. to say. Citizen Kane. Yes, you know, and um and I said out of Africa. <laughs> <laughs> and and my boss, the president of entertainment, if you're listening, I still remember this moment. And uh, <laughs> and the room like looked at me like like out of a teen movie, you know, from high school. And I was like, what? And, and my boss was like. You should not just say that. <laughs> and I said, it is 
it's my favorite movie. I still cry every time. I love that movie, you know? <laughs> and, and I just realized I am so in the wrong place, you know? Mm -hmm. I really just, this isn't my scene. I, I, I was very blessed. I, I had a great job and I made a very good living and I wore beautiful clothes and did a lot of cool, glamorous things, but, um, but it wasn't right for me. And, and I, I felt very ungrateful and thought I was very broken, that I wasn't more grateful for the position. And, um, you know, once I came to South Africa, every single day of my life, I'm grateful. And, and that has always told me that I'm in the right place. Looking back at your 29 year old self, are you surprised? Would you have guessed when you were 29 that you would be here now? I think, I think now by 47, my life in many ways looks like I thought it would look like to, well, especially while I was at university. I, I never thought that I'd be making wine and, 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 and I never thought that my journey in wine would ever be as successful as it was. I, I, I still am quite caught off guard by that. Mm. Talk about your boys. My boys are awesome. They are the most amazing people to hang out with. And I feel, I feel very grateful for them. Um, I, I have no doubt that they were put on this planet to help walk with me through this journey. They are they're funny and they're interesting and they're inquisitive and curious and, and easy. I, I wasn't really sure that I would have kids when I grew up. And, um, you know, they always say, God gives you what you can handle. And God has given me the most amazing kids who've made my life as a mother very, very easy. Are there any crossover lessons between being a winemaker and being a mother? Um, I think patience and 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 rolling with it and kind of taking what God gives you and let it tell its own story, not not over interfering and, mm -hmm. and trying to shape, you know, the, the raw material into something it doesn't want to be. Yeah. Um, I think that is you know, it's it's been made it's been made much easier by the fact that we are up here at the top of a hill in the middle of nowhere. I'll I'll say I have not felt very much pressure as a mother to force them, you know, as a round peg through a square hole in, in any way. And, you know, each day this journey kept us here on this farm, but I think it obviously was the right um, place for us. And, and yeah, all the normal external pressures, all the, all the normal things that, that modern parents face, I really feel I, I've, I haven't had to face many of them mm -hmm. as a mom. Mm -hmm. It's like I said, I, I think it's been a really safe place for me to raise my kids and not safe as in like crime safe, safe as in like away from all those modern pressures that both parents and kids feel. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's kept it very simple. Mm -hmm. But I think um, the school as it was in Grayton um, was very Victorian when I joined it. And, and I'm, the ultimate Gen X California, you know, liberal, um, Berkeley liberal on top of that. And, and I actually think the very strict structured environment of Grayton House also helped me as a mother mm. because it, I, I didn't, I didn't torture myself over gray areas. It kept it all very straightforward with right and wrong. And, and that made things very easy for me as well. It, it's an ironic 
twist to the story because I think one would assume quite the opposite. Yeah. But actually, I'm quite grateful for for you know the the leadership at the school back then, um, kind of parenting me a little bit and keeping yeah. you know everything very strict and and so yeah I yeah. just had to. So talk about and you may have touched on this already, but talk about a turning point in your life. There's so many. (laughs) Right. Thank goodness for that. (laughs) There's not just one. Yeah. You know, I, I think, you know, the, the obvious one is me um, choosing to just leave. Um, And my family always knew that I would leave um, America and and end up someplace far away. And I think they, my, my father passed away when I was 25 years old. And I think everybody assumed that very shortly after that I'd get on a plane and go. But for whatever reason, I actually channeled the trauma in a completely opposite direction. I felt that I should start moving up a corporate ladder and, and uh, yeah, and I, and, and I went, I, I doubled down in the television industry. And so at 29, when I realized how off track I was, um, I actually read Paul Bowles' The Sheltering Sky and at the end of the book, she takes off all of her clothes and walks into the desert. And I put that book down and said, I'm on my way. And I basically flew into Morocco. It was my first destination when I left America. Wow. Because um, that's what I felt I needed to do was take off all my clothes and walk into the desert. It was a metaphor. And, and, and I, had, I had gone from having this vision of myself, you know, transforming the world in Africa to, to, you know, driving around in chauffeured cars and television. And, and, you know, I really needed to metaphorically strip down and leave. Yeah. And I did. And so that, that's obviously a turning point. I, I, I see the rest of my life as a series of doors that either stayed locked or opened. And, and sometimes, you know, I pounded on doors just trying to get them to open. So my life could turn left and, and the door just wouldn't open and, and the doors kept opening going right or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I think the big turning point was me choosing to leave. But after that, I see, I see it very clearly as a series of doors that either opened or wouldn't open and kept me on a certain path. And, and that's actually why I'm here at 47 years old making wine. Yeah. And why wine? In the beginning, it was just actually something that we could do together and that we could raise our children and build a business. We were both passionate about wine. I think, you know, and I can I can answer it in a, in a, from a, in retrospect. And yet at the time, it was really just something that we could do as a family. And yet as a person who had always been drawn into interdisciplinary areas and interdisciplinary studies, which is what I did even at university. Wine is all of that. Wine is, you know, of the earth. You're you're dirty and you're tromping through the vineyards and you're dealing with the elements. It's it's, you know, chemistry in the cellar, it's artistry in the cellar. It's there's a lot of alchemy and magic that that is involved as well. And then you go out and it, it's showmanship, you know, and you put on your sparkly earrings and you go out into the world and you sell the brand. And so it's really a business. It's history and geography and geology. You know, it's it's food and and you know and 
passion and senses and and it's an industry full of really nice cool people and even the wealthiest richest most famous one person who lives in a chateau is ultimately just a farmer who can have his whole crop wiped out by hail so it's it's full of a very particular kind of person um, who's living in the next season believing it will be better than the last mm. and and who just is enjoying you know the walk on this earth as we get to make wine drink wine talk wine with all of our colleagues it's it's an amazing industry that i i feel very blessed and now I have no doubt that I was meant to be here. But along the way, it was just one door opening in front of another. Thanks for joining me for part one of my conversation with winemaker Samantha O'Keefe. Join me next time for part two as we talk more about what it takes to be a winemaker, wine as both science and art, and the challenge of being a female in the industry. Don't forget to follow at Podcast Cowgirl on Facebook and Instagram for photos and updates associated with our two podcasts, My Way and Lecker Y'all. And though the Lecker Y'all project is complete, Podcast Cowgirl has another project in the works. So stay tuned for that. And if you have any ideas for folks we should have on the show, email us at podcastcowgirl at gmail.com. Thanks and see you next time.